Welcome to the Filmlinks Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 80, Poised Poitier. Yeah, yeah, a lot of, it's a solid French pronunciation that we can both do, <laughs> and I'm very happy about that. I know, right? It's yeah. also, um, if not the, one of the first um, actor centric episodes that we've done so far on the podcast yeah it's really um this is pretty cool because we've talked about uh you know Catherine Hepburn and Audrey Hepburn um obviously very different and we kind of we didn't focus in on either one of them we talked about their similarities and differences and different time periods uh and we've talked about actor directors like Kenneth Branagh Charlie Chaplin uh but this is an episode about Sidney Poitier who did do some directing uh he did lots of stuff incredibly influential in the film industry uh but primarily he is an actor and that is what we're talking about today and uh we have picked out three really good and really distinct films to talk about his range and also uh just kind of his cultural impact on on the film industry. But before we get into those films, let's talk a little bit about the man himself. Yeah, the man, the myth, the legend, Sidney Poitier, who, by the way, is still alive today. He was born in 1927. He's currently 92 years old. Um, crazy. His great granddaughter is like 10 or 13 by now. Um, it's, it's pretty impressive. Um, <laughs> Apparently later in life, he had a scare with prostate cancer and he's taken really good care of himself ever since. And yeah, if you were to read his, that, <laughs> yeah, if you were to read uh, any of his autobiographies, uh, of which there are three so far, um, who knows, he might write another. Um, he has led kind of a blessed life. Uh, he's, yeah. he apparently when he was born prematurely in Miami, um, his mother went to go see a soothsayer. And that soothsayer said that, yeah, he'll live. He won't die, even though he's premature. And he'll go on to spread your name all across the world and uh, walk with kings and venture into places you never knew and live in wealth and fame. And all of that's Apparently true. the soothsayer didn't say, uh, beware the Ides of March. Because nope. he's been through several of them. <laughs> nope, yeah, like 92 of them. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so definitely leading a bit of a blessed life in some ways, but also not in many other ways. And that's going to kind of be at the core of today's um, uh, thematic discussion. Uh, he was born in Miami while his parents were on a trip there to sell tomatoes. Um, but he grew up on Cat Island in the Bahamas, um, which was a place that didn't have phones or cars or many modern uh, conveniences, even for 1927. Um, he eventually made his way through a series of happenstance to New York, where he joined uh, the American Negro Theater by the skin of his teeth. In fact, he was working there as a <laughs> yeah. janitor just to hold on to his position in the program. Um, and at this point, like, you know, he had about one year of education and could barely speak. And so, again, going into that blessed life kind of thing, he got kicked out of the theater and then just purely to prove them wrong he went and uh had some people at some of his other jobs who would help him uh speak and learn to read and um he literally just pulled himself up by his bootstraps after that and went back and finally uh got accepted for a little while and then started working for them and uh in order to get more training but it's amazing 
seeing where he is right now as like, especially when you listen to the audiobook of his autobiography read by him and you watch his films, like he's so well spoken that I can't even like think of him as this uneducated kind of uh, illiterate person. He might be one of the smartest people we've covered on the show, like just yeah. in terms of like book smarts. He, he is really, I mean, he really put in the effort. You can tell going through his, his biographies, he probably had a pretty sizable chip on his shoulder for the first part of his life. And uh, he set out to prove a lot of people wrong. And man, did he. I mean. And that goes into a lot of the films we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. I mean, he, he uh, has become a symbol of uh, proper, properly spoken English. Um, and yet when he was first moved to New York, he spoke with a, in his own words, a sing-song Caribbean accent um, that most people could barely understand. But anyway, he did catch a break while he was in the American Negro Theater Program, which, by the way, is a school, not a professional situation. Um, he was the understudy for one Harry Belafonte, who would go on to be his uh, lifelong friend and a frequent collaborator. Um, Harry was out for one night, uh, so Sidney was in the play and there just so happened to be a Broadway director sitting in the, the audience that night and he liked Sidney quite a bit and cast him in his first professional acting gig on Broadway. And from there, of course, it wasn't smooth sailing. There's a lot of, a lot of ups and downs that we won't cover here. Um, but he eventually took on uh, the career that we know as the Sidney Poitier career. Um, and kind of, you know, to focus, this is the 1950s that is coming up into, um, into acting the 1960s where he's starting to become the first African American actor to be nominated for the best actor, uh, category at the Oscars and even the first to win it. Um, although there was, uh, Hattie McDaniel won, uh, an Oscar before, uh, Sidney Poitier. So she was the first African-American, but he's the first African-American man to win the best actor. Uh, and I guess category. we're not counting Oscar Michaud. That's kind of, <laughs> well, I mean, he, he whom just the Oscars Oscar. are based on. Yeah. Um, um, anyway, anyway, that's kind of going to, he, I mean, he's, he's looped into the civil rights movement. Um, he know he, a lot of his friends at the time were looped into that. A lot of his uh, films deal with that theme. So, we're, we're going to obviously be trying lightly today and trying to have a deep, thoughtful uh, conversation about it. But just to let you know uh, that that's going to be a big part of today's podcast. So I guess hashtag trigger warning. Um, yeah. If that's something also, that you're not in the mood for, put this on a shelf for a rainy day where you do. Or if, you know, you just want to scream at us in comments for talking about this, then, you know, stop listening to the podcast. Go away. Yeah. And the other part of the disclaimer is that we are two white guys, if you have not listened to this podcast before. Um, so we may not be completely up to date on all the like technically, politically uh, correct parts of all of these movements. But we're talking primarily about how this relates to Sidney Poitier and um, the film industry specifically. Yeah. Um, so, Jonathan, have you seen Spike Lee's uh, newest movie? You might have heard of it. It's called Black Klansman. It was nominated for an Oscar this year, many Oscars. I have not uh, really okay. seen new films. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, there's a section of that film in which uh, David Duke is asserting that he can tell um, 
the race of somebody by their voice over the phone. And they spend the entire movie obviously fooling him over the phone by having uh-huh. an African-American detective pretend to be a white man over the phone, a white racist, to obviously infiltrate the organization. But, and I 100% agree with that, somebody's voice does not determine their race. It's not assigned. It's a factor of many other things. That being said, I'm pretty sure people know listening to this podcast, Jonathan, <laughs> that we're two of the whitest kids you know. Yeah. 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 Not based on our voices, but just based on our conversation. <laughs> oh, yeah. 100%. 100%. Um, all right. Well, the films that we're going to be talking about today uh, begin with A Raisin in the Sun from 1961, directed by, oh, gosh, Daniel Petrie. I'm going to assume that's how it goes. Um, this won the Golden Globe for Sidney Poitier, Best Actor, uh, and is based on a play by Lorraine Hansberry. And we'll talk about all the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff because Sidney Poitier also starred, well, quote-unquote, starred in the play, depending on how you look at yeah, it. Yeah, that's a whole discussion. Um, <laughs> and then we'll be moving on to A Patch of Blue from 1965, directed by Guy Green. Uh, which won the Oscar for Best Actress, and Poitier was not actually nominated, even though he does a fantastic job. Uh, and Sidney Poitier was nominated for Best Actor at the Golden Globes and the BAFTA, though. And finally, we will be talking about In the Heat of the Night from 1967, directed by Norman Jewison, uh, based on the book by John Bell, which won lots of Oscars for Best Picture, Best Actor uh, for... Rod Steiger, Sidney Poitier was not actually nominated. Uh, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Sound, and Best Film Editing. Poitier was, however, nominated for Best Actor at the Golden Globes and BAFTA. I'm seeing a trend here. Yep, 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 yep. Looking through all the award nominations, I saw a very distinct trend, too. Um, I wasn't really surprised that BAFTA was throwing it out there, throwing those noms out. I was surprised that the Golden Globes were. I mean, good for the Golden Globes. Yeah, but it's interesting. I don't know what like the history of the of the differentiation between those uh, awards, like the Golden Globes and the Oscars, are. But I imagine that if you've got several films in a row where Porte is being nominated for the Golden Globes and not even getting nominated for the Oscars, like regardless of winning, there's kind of a kind of some signaling going on there. Yeah, red flags. and I'm, I'm sorry, you can't watch any of these movies and not be like, oh man, that guy's amazing. <laughs> Because that's, yeah. that's all of these movies. All right. Well, let's have Jason set up A Raisin in the Sun for us. Take it away. A Raisin in the Sun from 1961. A man is dead. His life insurance will soon be paying out a check of $10,000 to his widow, Lena, who would very much like to use the money to move her family out of their cramped apartment to their own house. Meanwhile, her son, Walter, dissatisfied with life, wants to invest the money in a liquor store business. Her daughter, Benita, is using some of the money for her schooling as she attempts to ascend intellectually and culturally. Walter struggles to set an example for his son, Travis. Walter's wife, Ruth, is unexpectedly pregnant again, and the White Citizens Council of the neighborhood, where Lena buys a house, is not keen on accepting an African-American family moving in. The younger family can't seem to see eye to eye as they face the pressures of being poor and black in America. Their internal divisions start to tear them apart. Can they pull it together, or will they wither like a raisin in the sun? All right, Alex. 
I think we both realized that we had seen this film in high school at some point. Yeah. I <laughs> I who, thought that I had seen this in it, theater. I thought I watched this in theater. Maybe it was English? I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure that I wasn't paying attention to it very much when I did watch it, but I know I have seen it before. I definitely wasn't. I saw a movie, in high, and this is very indicative of high school me, I saw a movie in high school where uh, we didn't have to think in class. I could probably have taken a nap mm-hmm. on my desk, and there wasn't like a whole lot of physical action going on, so I wasn't interested. Yeah. Which I, to- yeah. I totally get. I totally get. This is for the most part a chamber piece and i'm pretty sure on stage it's uh, next to a complete it's, it's it's pretty much a complete chamber piece on stage isn't it oh yeah i assume it's it's almost identical um minus all the parts where they like go to the house and stuff because uh this film is very theatrical it's very much like um 30s and 40s films you know like thinking of um <clears throat> Frank Capra's uh, Arsenic and Old Lace, which is theater adapted into film. And since theater is built to take place in a very confined uh, set of settings, it's pretty easy to just kind of uh, turn it around. And you definitely see that in this film. And the fact that all of the story and the themes and the underlying stuff is through the acting and the blocking. There is very, very little like uh, fancy camera tricks or uh, like close ups on stuff and, um, you know, big camera moves. It's pretty much one angle of this apartment uh, from one side and we just get to watch these actors do their thing and they do their thing really, really well. Yeah, yeah, they really, really do. Um, I mean, it's and it's not to say that the cinematography isn't incredible. Um, it's very, it's very much based on tableau, though, yeah. rather than traditional, uh, you know, film uh, camera movement and camera shot composition. Yeah, yeah, and it, it brought up this thought this week, Jonathan, that. Um, you know, you don't need every single part of your movie to be a be like at a five star rating. You just need to know which parts of your movie need to be five stars, and then everything else should be supporting those parts. So in this, yeah. the writing is so textually rich, and I mean, we'll chew on the themes a little bit here. Although you could take a full semester class on this play oh, alone yeah. and not not get through it all. Um, and the acting is so phenomenal that the cinematography doesn't have to be like Citizen Kane fancy. Um, right. It just has to be good and like the like the characters. And there's <laughs> some good there's some really good moments with some really good shots. Um, I'm particularly thinking of um, actually a couple of the shots that appear on our Instagram this week. Follow us at, at the Filmlings on Instagram. <laughs> Especially a lot of the framing to do with uh, the check. Whenever the the check is held up, we have this really nice low angle shot of uh, the the mother character holding the check. um, And it's putting all of this. She's holding all of this power in her hands that she had never had before. And she does not look particularly thrilled about it. um, Right. At the cost that it's come come with at the division it's caused in her family. Um, There's some great shots when everybody's really mad at each other and falling out. 
where um, the the wife character and the husband character have fallen out. I mean, you know, go go explore the Instagram. It's phenomenal. The framing's wonderful. Even when the characters aren't looking at each other, keeping them all in the frame so you can see them all looking away from each other. Um, it's it's quite impressive. I mean, they they yeah. managed to spend some very interesting minutes most of the movie in one contained very cramped apartment. Yeah, and a lot of those um, really interesting shots are used as contrast or as punctuation in that since most of the film is done in wide, in uh, stationary shots, when we punch in to those moments, it's usually a very emotional moment when Sidney Poitier is down on the floor. He is, you know, acting his heart out, like literally. And uh, so when we do push into those really dramatic shots, they stand out even more in contrast to uh, the really wide and um, stable shots that most of the film is comprised by. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I actually feel like um, forcing the cinematography to stay within that confined space kind of helps to emphasize what the actual floor print of that apartment is driving towards in the in the yeah. film and and this sense that they're kind of trapped in this space and trapped in this mode of life and trapped in this economic situation this social social situation <laughs> much like the plant in the the much derided plant in the window that never gets any sunlight um right and you know it's it's kind of nice to have uh things thematically line up on different cylinders obviously all of the characters are feeling it across um across the film but just to have, you know, so many pieces of furniture in such a small space, to have so many actors in such a small space, and to have so many different, you know, so much of the film's runtime and so many different camera angles uh, in a confined spaces. Um, I don't know. It just, it works symphonically pretty well in the film. Yeah. So we talked about kind of what techniques the film doesn't use in order to convey a lot of its underlying meaning. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things that it does use, which are very traditional theatrical techniques like uh, blocking and staging and tableau and stuff like that. So the film basically starts off right off the bat with a lot of these things that uh, are kind of embedded throughout it. But for example, um, we start off with kind of uh, sort of uh, an every morning kind of a deal. um, And then everything sort of goes from there. But so the sun wakes up on um, on the couch. So we kind of get the fact that they don't have enough room for everybody in this apartment. Uh, and so the son gets up and or his mom gets him up and he's kind of like dragging. He's kind of like uh, wobbling all over the stage as he's trying to wake up and go to the bathroom. Um, and then the dad gets up and he does almost the exact same motions that his son did. Uh, so we get a that their father and son before anyone has said it. Uh, and there's just a lot of this kind of mirroring that they're, they're kind of in the same situation. And, uh, it really almost sets, sets out this underlying thing of, uh, you know, like father, like son. So the, um, so the conflict, you know, whatever happens to the father is going to trickle down and affect this whole family. And that's actually something that we really should talk about, Alex, because that was a big part of the, uh, I guess, conflict behind the scenes in uh, in the theatrical production of this play uh, 
or at least as portrayed by Sidney Poitier in his autobiography, The Measure of a Man, uh, which we both read leading up to this, and we'll include a, a link to if anyone is interested in it. Um, but basically, the idea is that this film or this play was written uh, from the point of view of a woman of color, and it was really a kind of an emphasis on strong female uh, black characters. Uh, and it was written that way. However, the way that it turns out, the way that and the way that Sidney Poitier ended up reading it and thinking about it is that the son is the primary protagonist of the film. Uh, and he makes a really good case for it, because even though the mother is the kind of grounding anchor for this whole family, the son is the one who goes through the change in the film. He is the one that has to make um, the biggest decisions that will affect his life going forwards. Obviously, the decisions affect all of their lives and the mothers in particular, but she is more of a catalyst and he becomes the um, agent of change that or the 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 object that has to decide what direction everything else is going to go. And he kind of goes back and forth on that throughout the play. Um, and it really comes across that way in the film, which was created after the play and is kind of, you know, as Sidney Poitier is the top build actor, they kind of um, went with that. But when they were doing the theatrical production, there was a lot of tension between people who thought that the it should be performed from the mother's point of view versus people who thought it should be performed from the son's point of view. And that doesn't mean that anything within the the script or anything changes. It's just a way of the actors uh, presenting their roles that makes the difference. Certainly. And in, when you're talking about taking it to a cinematic format, um, it goes beyond just the acting to the staging, the camera choices, yeah. the cutting, who has... Um, even just the fact of the first frame being Sidney Poitier in bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We set up that this is the guy. Um, he's very recognizable. Um, he's the movie star in this situation. Uh, and, of course, I kind of like... I feel like watching the movie, and, of course, I've never seen the stage play, and I've never seen the original version of it, so I don't really know what they're talking about with the original version. I can guess at it but i don't really know because i haven't experienced it but i like the the feeling i get from watching the film of it feels like the son played by Sidney poitier is trying to be the protagonist okay yeah sorry let me differentiate that because when i was saying the son a little bit earlier i was talking about Sidney poitier's son so we're dealing oh, with sure certainly walter the grandmother yeah so walter the husband yeah. whatever so Walter, play, it feels like Walter, played by Sidney Poitier, is trying to be the protagonist but just does not have the chance for most of the, most of the film and is striving for it, um, striving for his, his sunlight, much like the plant in the window. They're all the plant in the window, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of like reason? the whole family is the plant in the window. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that, yeah, this film and A Patch of Blue... Uh, the titles are fairly abstract. I kind of get a patch of blue. I kind of get it. Um, but this one, I don't know. I'm sure, you know, you could write a whole thesis pa paper about what the meaning <laughs> of a raisin in the sun is. 
Um, I have three guesses off the cuff myself, but I'm not going to waste your time with them. But yes, it does feel like Walter's striving to be the protagonist and that the grandmother or the mother is um, holding firm as being the protagonist at the start of the story, but you get the sense that it's kind of like this changing of the guard, this moving into the future, um, this passing of the torch. Uh, literally, she passes the torch. She's like, you are the head of the family now. Act like it. Um, yeah. I don't know. There's a lot There's a lot going on in this film, Jonathan. Um, there's a lot of themes being held, held together. But while they're juggling all of these themes and all of these connections, I think they benefit from the the text just being so good that they don't have to convey all of it with the camera so the cameras there kind of just to capture it but not necessarily to establish all of these themes that we keep seeing over and over and over yeah yeah um so yeah i mean with that all of the everything is coming from the actors like like we've been talking about and you can see that in the way that all the performances are, even the performances are more theatrical than a typical film. You know, usually the differentiation between film acting and theater acting is that theater acting is big. You know, you're playing for the back of the house. You want to make sure that everyone can see what you're doing and that your emotions are coming across more so through your physicality than through necessarily um, your intonation or your facial expression. Uh, and you know, we get huge moments in this film where Sidney Poitier is standing up on the table with his arms flung wide, like in classic theatrical tradition. Um, and of course, the scenes where he's getting very emotional and he's down on his knees and he's pounding the floor. Um, those are things that you don't normally see in a filmed drama because they can be done much more subtly and still get the same basic emotions across. But this I, I kind of like the fact that this film did not try to reimagine itself, reimagine the performances in a much more in a very subtle kind of filmic way. I think that Sidney Poitier really gets to shine and all the actors really get to shine in these really huge and exaggerated characters that are kind of bringing these real life issues home in a very big and unmistakable way. Yeah, yeah, no, they are definitely creating, I would say it's borderline melodrama. I'm not super clear on that definition, but it's it's getting close to it. Um, yeah. And I, I really enjoy the fact that the original work is just so strong that, I mean, it feels like everything we're, we're saying is leading up to the same point, that the filmmakers, as the specifically the cinema filmmakers involved, the DP, the director, and so on, we're mostly just there to not get in the way of the story that existed because yeah. the story itself is so strong. It's just really yeah. good. Kind of like, let's just immortalize this play and not do too much to mess with it because we could just very easily detract from what makes the play so magical. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, um, one of the, one of the reasons this ended up in our selection today is because it's such good material with the spotlight on Poitier himself. And of course he shines brilliantly in that spotlight. Um, he's equal parts ambitious and tragic and all sorts of things. And you feel for him and you get mad at him and upset at him along with the other characters. And then you want to forgive him. And then at the end, I don't know, 
the end was so much more satisfying than I remember it being in high school, probably because I, <laughs> I cared. Know. Um, I had grown up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you know, and of course, at this point, like, we have responsibilities and have to deal with finances and stuff. So there's a lot more, like, connection than we had when we watched it in high school. Yeah, and, you know, we've, uh, you know, obviously both of us, we kind of grew up in a bit of a bubble in suburbia, but we've both grown up and we've ventured outside of that bubble and we've been around the world. Um, well, not around the world, all of it, but we've been around and out of our hometown. <laughs> yes, we've we've been to other places. Um, I've spent my years in the wild, in New York, kind of like Potier did, but he, he stuck around. I didn't. Um, and, you know, obviously, I th- I felt like the racial themes hit home more for me now than they did when I was a yeah. kid, which I hope goes for most of my fellow white people. <laughs> I hope it does. I think, sadly, um, this probably hits home, hits home about the same for people of color. Um from high school because they just don't, they don't have the choice to not be aware of it. Um, which is kind of like a theme of Sidney Poitier's career, right? Like anytime he's cast in something because he's trailblazing this path for, um, widely accepted, widely supported, um, African American leads in American cinema, every role he takes, he is, basically having to deal with these themes, whether he likes it or not, um, having to carry the burden of like trying to represent an entire race as one person, um, in every single thing he plays. And he talks in his autobiographies about this. And he seems like the kind of person who wasn't just up for the task, but relished in it. And it was nice to have him in a play where he didn't have to carry that alone. And he was allowed to explore some other areas of humanity, obviously all of them impacted by his race and influenced and shaped by it, but not all of it being almost reduced to that. Like he's a failure and ambition and a son and a father and a husband. And he's every, every character is like five different things to five different other people in this movie. And they're so well-rounded and alive and popping off the screen. You love it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big part of this film is that, um, if I can misappropriate another kind of, uh, thing that we've talked about on the, on the show before, which is the Bechdel test, um, as a refresher, this idea that if you have, we're hitting it all um, today, Jonathan, we're hitting all <laughs> know, the right? controversy today, let's do it. If you have multiple female characters in a film, they should, uh, ideally have a conversation with each other that does not relate to a man. And I think that if we kind of twist that a little bit into kind of a racial Bechdel test. This film like spends a lot of time not dealing with race. It's kind of this underlying tension under everything that bubbles up at certain points when things are going a little bit too well for the whole family. But a lot of times it's just very human conflict that, you know, doesn't really matter for what race you are. Like everyone has this uh, conflict of wanting the best for their family, wanting to do not just well, but great, wanting uh, all of these things, wanting to get in touch with your history and stuff like that. All of these things are very human and they have very specific applications for the African-American community. 
but they're not exclusive to that. And then the points where the race does become forefront, like when um, uh, the little mousy dude from the neighborhood comes and tells them that they want them to move out because they don't want black people in their neighborhood. Then again, it's like that contrast. We've been so, so ingrained in just the humanity of these, of these characters that we feel the injustice of this racial conflict all the more yeah 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 it's it's one of those things i feel like none of the issues that the family or any of the characters are having can be completely disconnected in in their own individual shape and form within within this movie from uh the issue of race and racism that surrounds the family and all, all these other things, what jobs are acceptable for, for them to have. Um, and they, they, they start to have all these tensions and they kind of, what, what neighborhoods they're allowed to live in, so on and so forth. And some of those tensions have kind of started to turn inwards and their outward frustrations have started to turn inwards on the family and become like a double pressure cooker in a way from both inside and out um, in a really connected way. So it like draws you in with this this completely relatable human thing, even to people who haven't experienced um, that slice of life, and then you know slips it in there and be like, "Hey, all this stuff is connected to this too." Imagine if you had all these problems, and and, <laughs> and on top of it, and to to get it through <laughs> the skulls of um, of people that like, yeah. This this is this is something that you should take to heart. This is something that you should pay attention to. Um, this is something that is real. Um, and of yeah. course, the shape of it in 1961 is very different. Uh, of the shape of it in 1981 is very different. Of the shape of it in 2001 will be very different than the shape of it in 2021. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be aware of all of those things. I think if nothing else, a raisin in the sun is a very good lesson in empathy because all of the characters yeah. are lacking it to a certain degree at the start and all of the characters gain it at the end. And once they've gained like this empathy for each other within the family, they're, they're like, okay, yeah, no, we can, we can make this work. We can, we, we'll, we, if we band together and we understand each other's problems and we, we, you know, move forward as a family, we can do this. And that's, that's kind of like yeah. their solution piece. I'm like, yeah, you know, well, yes, and we can apply it to everybody. Yeah, that monologue from the from the mother when she's talking to the sister, and she's like, uh, you know, if you can't love someone when they're completely down on their luck, when is it, when is the time to love them? You know, like, and she like that whole monologue is just so powerful. Um, yeah, just again the. The themes and the script and everything is so good. Uh, before we move off of this film, though, Alex, I want to I want a little bit to just bring it up in contrast to another film that we've talked about, uh, which is It's a Wonderful Life, which has a lot of um, kind of thematic similarities and even some plot parallels in the fact of um, having the money that they need to make their dreams come true and then losing it and then being completely... Um, at the breaking point. Uh, but you know, obviously it's like coming at it from a completely, completely opposite social, uh, perspective. Um, but like, do you see enough parallels that this is kind of like 
the African-American version of It's a Wonderful Life, but just with a lot more, uh, you know, obviously with the, the racial conflict on top of all of the conflict that the white characters had in It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, a little bit. I, I kind of see it. If you want to like if you want to make Walter into um, uh, George Bailey, George Bailey. Yeah, I could I, I could definitely see it. I think the I think the, the biggest glitch in the comparison is that all of the characters around um, George Bailey aren't nearly as rounded or share as much time yeah. as the characters around um, Walter. Do. Yeah, the family aspect isn't isn't exactly isn't as fleshed out and it's but a wonderful life. But yeah. I definitely get you. They kind of they kind of follow the same like path of like an older man's buildings roman an older man's coming of age of sorts yeah and it's it's kind of about you know learning that you know having dreams and aspirations and goals is great but really what it comes down to is what you have right now at this moment and learning to appreciate that uh rather than trying to sacrifice everything that you do have for something that you might be able to get I have sleep deprivation. Does that count? <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. Well, let's move on to a very different type of film uh, in A Patch of Blue. A Patch of Blue from 1965. A poor, uneducated white woman named Selena lives with her abusive prostitute mother and her alcoholic grandfather. She was blinded as a little girl when her mother threw a bottle of chemicals at her father but missed and hit Selena instead. Ever since, Selena has been isolated, uneducated, and verbally abused by her mother. That is, until one day when she goes to the park to string beads, her informal job of sorts. There she meets Gordon, an educated, soft-spoken kind man who happens to be black. The two become fast friends as Gordon shows Selena how to get around and experience a world she's never been exposed to. Selena's mother, frustrated at Selena's growing freedom, makes plans to sell her into prostitution. Gordon, hoping for a better future for Selena, tries to get her into a respected school for the blind. And Selena? Well, she just wants her newfound connection, the first loving one in her life, to last. All right, Jonathan, I'm going to be honest with you here. I... Well, it was it was more than slightly tearing up. I will say I, I cried at the end of this movie. I was... I was very emotional while watching this movie, even while taking notes. I was like, oh my gosh. And it's not that I thought it wasn't like cheesy and it definitely drifted into like this realm of melodrama, but also like the, the, the the lead couple's just so sweet. How could you not love them? Oh my gosh. I think, I think this film, Sidney Poitier's character has the, I think this character is the best example of kind of, um, the moral bulwark of the film. And I think that his um, convictions are so good that, you know, he, I mean, he literally carries this whole film, even though I guess technically the girl is the primary protagonist, but he is so important and he's so good in it. Um, yeah. He kind of like, hij- that, there's a big sections of the film where he kind of hijacks being the protagonist. Um, oh yeah yeah but i mean they're both so good and i'll tell you i'll tell you the moment specifically that got me and there's this moment where um oh man why can't i remember her name selena 
um, Selena tells Sidney Poitier's character that he's beautiful. That uh, well, he, she's just told him that yes, I know. Oh, yeah, I know that uh, that you're that you're black, that you're African American, and I think you're beautiful. And oh, that's the one that his got me. Face. Uh, his face yeah. was great. Um, I mean, so many things rolled into one. The fact that she's blind, so obviously she's just looking into his soul and who he is as a person. Um, the fact that, you know, it's not very frequently that you see that, or I mean, it's not like it doesn't happen, but it's not very frequently in films that you see women call men beautiful. And that that was like yeah. the, the big romantic moment at the end was like, oh my gosh, that's adorable. Um, but also the fact that that's exactly what he needed to hear. And you can see that in his face. And that's what we get to see a lot in this film, which this is kind of going to almost carry in the heat of the night. But in this film, we get to see the way that film. Um, and this is uh, something that he talks about in his autobiography. And obviously he's talked about lots of other places. But Sidney Poitier is one of those people that the camera loves. And what that means is that Sidney Poitier is able to convey basically his thoughts through his face on film. And we get to see that so much in this film as he's learning about her and her tragedy and uh, trying to decide what his relationship to her should be just on a human level versus what society should would think it should be. Um, we get to see him wrestle with all of these things uh, without him saying anything. And that's what makes him so good and what makes him be able to carry a film like this even when it's not really his job to carry this film yeah yeah and to put this into like i don't know for whatever reason the metaphor popped into my head um but to put this into 2019 lingo if you had a bank of just cine portier gifts they would not <laughs> need any text and you would be able no. to communicate perfectly with another human being through just those gifts of slight Except eyebrow maybe raises. they call me Mr. Tibbs. I mean, that's wonderful. That That's a whole <laughs> different thing. Did you know they made a trilogy out of that, Jonathan? There are two other Mr. Tibbs movies. And I'll tell you yeah, what, they're I've not seen good. That. <laughs> um, in the heat of the night, it's great, though. But yeah, yeah, no, I mean, just... Uh, it's, it's a hard thing to tell. This is one of those things about having a podcast about a visual medium there's some things that you just have to show people. You just got to watch it. Um, you yeah. just got to watch it. You got to, you got to understand his looks. Um, and there's something about the balance of this totally innocent, um, girl who I feel like we call girl over the course of the film, but really she's like 17 or something in the, the movie. She's like 17 or 18, nearly. A yeah. Woman. But, but in experience, she's that, just a girl because she's yeah. been like cooped up nearly like Cinderella right. her sheltered. entire life. Um, sheltered's a word for it. I wouldn't necessarily describe it as sheltered though, um, as she's been like abused her whole life as well. Um, right. But so she's that's kind of, that's totally one thing. seen it through innocent eyes and she's just throwing these completely unexpected things out there because she hasn't been in society for so many years and she doesn't understand how the world works and she doesn't, she literally does not see color. <laughs> And I'm not saying right. that in like the ignorant way of a person claiming that they're colorblind. I'm saying like she <laughs> she's, she, blind. she's blind. Like she can't she cannot see color. Um, and therefore, the way she experiences the world 
isn't just like different in the way like a white person experiences the world and a black person experiences the world in 1965. I'm saying like it's totally different. Like the concept of race kind of exists for her, but not nearly in the way like it's been so internalized by Sidney Poitier's character. So she's just throwing out all of these things and Sidney Poitier is just, I mean, every single scene he's receiving like 10 different curveballs from her yeah so he's got like perfect give and take like reaction fodder Sydney portier reaction <laughs> reaction fodder Sydney portier reaction <laughs> it's a perfect balance and it really helps her chemistry as a couple too on screen um even though they're not explicitly romantic until like the very end right and they they kind of wrestle with that a little bit but yeah more um, on that later yeah so Sydney Poitier and uh, I forget her name, but Selena kind of their relationship carries this whole film and that is the main focal point. But I do want to talk about um, the antagonist part of this film, because especially at the beginning, um, like there's very much this kind of Charles Dickensy villain plot going on where the antagonists are just so evil that they don't they almost don't feel like real people at some points um and also the contrast between their living situation and the actual world in which we're trying to establish that we're in the real world and then there are just these two hillbillies that live in this one apartment with like no electricity and uh it it was a little jarring to me i don't know if you got that sense as well i kind of got it it was a little extreme I was mostly just focused on really not liking the antagonist. Right. Um, no, and that's where like the Charles Dickens thing comes in because you know he would create these caricatures that exist solely to create this emotion of hatred within you, so that you can sympathize even more with the main character. And that's exactly what these what these characters do. It just felt a little strange in that the rest, like her reaction, her relationship with Sidney Poitier and their relationship with society was much more nuanced than what (laughs) these uh, antagonist characters were. Yeah. But it kind of, it kind of lends it a uh, a fable quality to it. Like the evil stepmother kind of a thing, like never lets her out. Like, like you mentioned, it's kind of a Cinderella type of thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. And a part of that was, I thought in one of the versions of Cinderella, like Cinderella went blind. Um, but I was wrong in one of the versions, the stepsisters, the stepsisters get their eyes pecked out by birds that are controlled by Cinderella. Um, and then yes, Rapunzel does get blinded when she falls into a thorn patch. Because both her and, and her those aren't just prince, one of the versions; those are the real versions. Yeah. Both both Rapunzel and her prince get blinded in the thorn patch. I think. I don't know. It's all very confusing and yeah. Weird. And then she cries on him anyway. Read. Yeah, uh, we're not talking about Brothers Grimm right now, but those are some trippy stories. Yeah, that's a whole different podcast. But yeah, no, they they are absurd. I kind of got like part of it was, and they set this up fairly early in the film too. There's like a very early fantasy sequence where Selena's character, who's played by Elizabeth Hartman, by the way, I looked it up, um, dreams that she's running around and she can see in the park and they overexpose all the film. So it's really bright and shiny. Um, and it's kind of like we're seeing the world, how she imagines she can see it because she can only remember bits and pieces of it from when she was very, very young. Um, and in fact, that's where the title comes from. She, she can only 
the only color she can really remember is a, a patch of blue here and there in the sky. Yeah. Um, but I, I get, got the sense that a lot of the characters were exaggerated, partially because a lot of the story is happening through um, this protagonist's eyes. Sorry, wrong, uh, wrong uses of viewpoint. <laughs> through her point of view. No, it, yeah. it, it, none of it works. You know what I mean. Anyway, <laughs> through her scope, um, we're, we're seeing everything through like this exaggerated um, this exaggerated reality. Uh, and, and part of it is that she hasn't experienced the world. And also part of it is she is, you know, she kind of hasn't had any, she isn't educated. She hasn't been exposed to a lot of other people. She's unsocialized. Um, so the way that the world works in her head is probably pretty close to, uh, fairy tales and if you notice the the scenes that are least like that are the ones where Sidney Poitier is there too um, yeah because he's kind of her connection to reality and to the real world and real people yeah so the entire perception of the film almost shifts when he's around and they're just like having a cute rom-com scene in the supermarket um, my favorite yeah that was that was pretty adorable actually I think my favorite part one or one I have a lot of favorite points. I think I rated this like a five on Letterbox Jonathan. I really like this movie. Um one of my favorite one of my favorite parts of this movie is when that kind of fantasy world and that kind of real world collide um near the climax and there's actually direct conflict between Sidney Poitier's character and the evil stepmother. Or she is just her mother, but we're gonna call her the stepmother. Yeah. Evil <laughs> she hasn't earned the right of being a real mother. Um the evil stepmother character clash in the park and there's no even real back and forth like Sidney Poitier and uh, Elizabeth Hartman just kind of walk away but the stepmother's just there like screaming and upset that she was touched by an African-American man um, oh yeah while, and while nobody she was, like, throwing, does anything while she was throwing around her daughter and then everybody just looks at her like what's wrong with you lady what world are you living in <laughs> Literally, because she was living in her own fantasy world where she's been keeping her right. daughter pen up this entire time. And now in the real world, everyone doesn't give a crap. Like, whatever. Okay, Alex. So um, we both had this same thought um, in our notes this week as far as the, f- the film that this brought us to in our heads, which is uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Marnie. And I feel like this film is the moral redemption of Marnie. Uh, because where in Marnie, Sean Connery finds this uh, tragically um, abused woman and granted falls in love with her, but still, uh, you know, doesn't conduct himself completely chivalry. He falls in love with her in a creepy, rapey way. Yeah, and he kind of like forces his love on her. This film, Sidney Poitier's character is kind of the opposite of that. He's able to... uh, take pity on her, sympathize with her, even fall in love with her and yet not let that compromise him. Uh, and he realizes that she, you know, she kind of falls for him way too quickly because he's literally the only other person that she knows. And regardless of whether or not she would fall in love with him anyway, because he's such a, a kind of upstanding person. Um, he's like, you need to experience the world before you decide that, uh, you want us to be together. Like, he's like, I'm okay with that, but 
you can't make that decision based on only knowing me. And uh, he even stops himself um, from kind of taking advantage of her in the way that kind of Sean Connery does in Marnie. And so that's that's what I'm talking about when I say that, like Sidney Poitier's character is a a such a strong moral bulwark in this uh, in this film. And especially when you put it in contrast to the way that Marnie was. And of course, it's like oh, in yeah. a very different genre and everything. Oh, but trying to get there are so many. Across. Yeah, but there's so many thematic uh, similarities that I don't think it's an inappropriate comparison. Not at all. Not at all. And you know what? I was a, originally I was a little torn on the ending. I felt like maybe for a second that it was kind of shying away from having the ending be a happy, definite ending for an interracial couple. But right. but also the decision they made was insanely healthy and mature. Um, so I was like, you know what? Yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah, yeah. good. That's a good call. I feel like a lot of people these days need that information. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, wow, I can't get over this movie, Jonathan. I'm sorry. Um, one of the other, <laughs> so one good. of the other thematic lines that I love that kind of crisscrosses in the middle. Um, I felt like the, the movie started off with two characters. Um, one Elizabeth Hartman, who is desperately in need of just somebody to actually show her love and kindness. And one yeah. Sidney Poitier, um, whose character kind of just didn't know that he had so much love to give and kind of felt like he had been like containing himself, holding himself back in a way. Um, and then suddenly they meet and one who is in need of love and one who has so much love to give perfect match, but you cross over in the middle in a way once they start changing and Elizabeth Hartman realizes that she doesn't just want love. She wants to give love as well. Um, and Cindy Porte at the like the very end realizes how nice it is to be loved too. Like when when she tells yeah. him that that he's beautiful, which again, that's a great moment. Yeah. Can't get over it. You know what? You know what else is so good but so subtle is right after that when she leaves um, on the bus to go to boarding school or whatever, and he realizes that she left the music box and runs out to give it to her, but the bus is gone. And it's so great because this little item, which um, beforehand was kind of kind of a family heirloom, but also had a lot of baggage in it. Um, we kind of get the, the sense that it was handed down from his grandmother who was having a relationship with like uh, her, her slave master or something like that. Um, and so it kind of goes from that to being something connected with uh, Selena because she loves it so much and she, you know, she's able to interact with it in a way that even he can't because she's blind and she's able to connect with the music in it. Um, and so it, it has a lot of it has a lot of kind of meaning for her. And so it'd be great if she was able to have that with her. But now he has it and now it's a symbol of her and it kind of this item takes on a whole new meaning and uh, it gives him something to remember her by. Uh, and so like just such such a little thing um, and is kind of like a lesson in how to use props in order to convey theme and meaning and kind of go into the bigger picture of the film. Yeah. And you know what? It's a it's a perfect loose end. 
Jonathan, in one year's yeah. time, he's got the perfect reason to contact her again. Hey, I wanted to, I gave you this music box, but you <laughs> left it. So here's your music box. Also, how you doing? You've been educated now. Yeah. <laughs> You've seen the world. You can read Braille now. Speaking. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think this is also a thing that, uh, that kind of goes into Sidney Poitier's life. And one of the things that he's so adamant about in his autobiography is that he would only take roles that he thought were uh, kind of morally worthy for him. And that did not that did not stop at like characters that were racially um, denigrated, but just anything that was not like a good character for him to play or something that had something good to say about people in general, regardless of race. Um, and so you can see a lot of parallels with his own life and his own values in each of the roles that he plays. And so I think that this idea of making sure that this uh, sheltered girl gets educated and becomes familiar with the world before rashly rushing into anything, whether it's a relationship or anything else, um, relates to his own life as being uh, semi, like, quote-unquote, sheltered on this little island that had no ex no exposure to technology or uh, race conflict or anything, and then or education, and then coming to the United States and kind of being bombarded with race tension and having to uh, learn what education can do for you. So the fact that his kind of, uh, shining moment is to send her to school must've been something that was very impactful and personal to Sidney Poitier himself. Oh, I, I a hundred percent believe that that definitely seems like him. He definitely was a person who in his most moral and upstanding roles, you could bet that was probably how he was in real life. Especially yeah. once you go through his biographies, which I, if we can just recommend, not a sponsor, but Audible, um, go listen to them being read by him because he has such a pleasant uh, voice that he worked very hard to develop and maintain. Um, and it's worth it to go hear it in his own voice. So do that and learn more about the man. Now, before we uh, move on to our final film for the episode, Jonathan, I want to touch on kind of a more technical directorial cinematographic uh touch of this film um and that's kind of like the scope of the world in which we're in uh it's in a city although not necessarily any particular city um right and it doesn't cover much of the city although we do go to um some odds and ends of places like the office that Sidney Poitier works at but only only like once in the film um, yeah, but even like that intersection that she has to cross becomes yeah, kind of, most a, of it, a geographical fixture. Most of it takes place within a few blocks of each other, uh, mostly just where uh, this girl lives, the park, and then like the few blocks around that. Because for her, somebody who um, no longer has their sight and has never uh, learned how to properly get around um, in a world that is not meant for her in any way, shape, or form... Um, it, that's a big world. I mean, even a few blocks. Yeah. And, you know, some of the most tense or some of the most cute moments of the film happen because that small, small world or that world that seems so small to me and you, Jonathan, is so big to her. Whether it's the fun yeah. of her exploring it with, um, with her, her new friend or 
whether it's the tension of her just trying to make it a few blocks to get somewhere before such and such a time, um, which happens a couple times over the course of the film, I think. Um, one, one of the failed attempt uh, to set up the tension for a later attempt at a very dire moment of the film. Um, and it's, it's impressive because it's really it's just a woman walking down the street. But they, they tie all of the, the plotline threads, all of the themes, all of the hopes and dreams and ambitions of these characters into a woman being able to successfully cross the street. And it makes for what would otherwise be a visually kind of dull, um, tense series to become incredibly tense and incredibly right. interesting and incredibly exciting, um, even though it, it doesn't involve like... I don't know, Mission Impossible style stunts, stunts or anything <laughs> like that. It just goes to show the the boundaries of your story and the uniqueness of your characters define what makes a tense climax more than what movie convention says is a tense climax. Yeah, and especially because, um, as I realized this week uh, watching that film, Apparently in the 60s, the uh, the little crosswalk buttons didn't have any sounds, and they didn't say, walk, walk, walk. I mean, <laughs> I was just a little surprised to see subway, or, or those sidewalk buttons. I, I never thought yeah, of when true. they were installed, or when they became a thing, but I don't know. It was just weird to see it in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. But I think also, um, going back to your point, that the the city is never really defined. I think that goes back into this kind of fable quality that it could be kind of anywhere. It's kind of like this, um, uh, I don't know, the, the city is almost the enchanted forest or whatever. Like it, it's kind of this nondescript place where all of these events can take place without getting bogged down with the, the real life implications of whatever city they would have chosen are yeah 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 and i love that she plays such a big role in um in saving herself i mean she's the one who gets gets herself away um at the end Cindy portier's character is kind of just acts as a guide and of course it ends up being kind of like this mutual relationship of equals by the end of the film um but it, it very much isn't it could have very easily become a complete damsel in distress situation and it didn't go there yeah so that 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 yeah. is solid because that would have made for a much weaker film all right well let's move on to our final film uh in the heat of the night jason set us up in the heat of the night from 1967 sparta mississippi 1966 a wealthy industrialist promising to bring business to this small town is found dead in the middle of the night. And almost immediately, a gun-happy officer arrests an African-American man at the train station based solely on the fact that he was a black man at the scene of the crime. Turns out this man is actually a homicide detective from Philadelphia, Mr. Tibbs, who gets volunteered by his captain into helping the investigation led by the rough and prejudiced Chief Gillespie. Neither man likes the other, but the case is too interesting for Tibbs to turn down, and Gillespie needs the expertise of a trained murder investigator. The suspects pile up. A poor grifter, a mean old plantation owner, one of the cops, an oddball local. As the investigation heats up, Tibbs must face down multiple violent mobs and rampant racism. 
Gillespie, meanwhile, confronts his own prejudices and racism as he comes to rely on Tibbs more and more. Will the two men find a way to work together and solve the murder? And can they do so before the tense situation in the town finally explodes? All right, so I've seen this movie before, Jonathan. Was this your first time watching it? Yeah, I'd, I'd never seen it before. I knew, like, they call me Mr. Tibbs, but that's pretty much all I knew about Did it. Did you know that from Psych? I did know that from Psych. And also, <laughs> it's quoted in um, The Lion King of all of all places. <laughs> hmm. At some point, Puma goes, they call me Mr. Pig. <laughs> I did not realize yeah. that. Oh, Disney my. references, y'all. <laughs> oh, my. Um, yeah, no, but this was this was great. Um, there there was a lot of other like uh, neo-noir kind of stuff that I was thinking of. Um, but, you know, just kind of taking a typical neo-noir kind of backwoods city story that you might get from, you know, David Lynch or something like that and adding one black character uh, kind of throws the whole thing and makes it so unique and so good and just makes it actually mean something. And the way that Rod Steiger's character changes is so good. I love seeing uh, that relationship and I love seeing Rod Steiger um, just kind of like change as we go through. And even from the beginning when he says, because I'm not an expert, that was such a powerful thing that says so much about his character um, before he even starts. Like he doesn't start from a place of complete uh, racism like so many of the characters in this film do. He starts from a place of um, at least some amount of humility. Like he tries to put on this tough guy thing, but when he needs help, he recognizes that and he asks for it. Uh, even if it's in this kind of macho way. Yeah. And then as as he moves towards the end of this kind of complete friendship uh, with Sidney Poitier's character, um, their dynamic is so good. Yeah, yeah. And you can, you can tell that it hurts him a bit every time he changes, but he still does it, um, which, which says a lot about his character, obviously. Um, but you can also tell that there's, there's often a lot of weakness within him. There's a lot of fear. Um, it feels like a lot of time when a lot of the instances where he's rushing towards the suspect, that he doesn't necessarily have um, all of the actual evidence to put away. Um, it's oh, yeah. just because he's afraid of the repercussions of not of not finding it. So I mean, he's, not finding anybody. He, yeah. yeah, he's a deeply, deeply flawed character who changes a lot. Um, and interestingly, in a kind of like odd couple sort of way. Him and um, Sidney Poitier's character, Virgil Tibbs, kind of round each other out in a way. Um, oh, yeah. And, and they, they kind of make a good pair. Now, we, we of course, we do have to talk about this balance of prejudices in the film. Um, and I think might have worked better in 1967 than it works now. Um, I think on a, like a character level, I think it still works very well. Um because there's a character who has the expertise um, and because the rest of the people around him doesn't ha- don't have that expertise and because they are Southern Hicks, he looks down his nose at them. And then the, the other character, Rod Steiger's character, um, looks down his nose at uh, Tibbs for very obvious reasons. 
reluctantly realizes that he has that he has need of him um and then kind of moves forward from there uh they they kind of make one or two moments in the film where they call tibbs prejudice and in, yeah in like in like a dictionary sort of way that's true um but like the moral balance sheet of this film nowadays feels totally totally off balance um and that doesn't make it any less of a movie it just means maybe the message was meant for 1967 and not 2019 um i don't feel like somebody feeling snooty because they're educated equals systematic um oppression and racism over hundreds of years in the american south i feel like those don't equal each other um no but i don't think that they have to in order to say that prejudice is an issue that goes two ways. Like anybody can have prejudice regardless of like how big the prejudice is on one side or the other. But I think that, um, one of the things that we were just talking about as far as character dynamics that go into Sidney Poitier's own life, I think that the way that that relates to Virgil Tibbs is that Sidney Poitier talks about how once he decided that he was going to be an actor, he did not want to just be a good actor or as good as, um, you know, regular white actors or anything, but he had to be better. He had to be better than good. He had to be the best. And that is kind of where Virgil Tibbs is coming from, that he's not just as good as a white person. He's better than these white people. Um, and I think that that is part of the thing that he kind of has to realize that, yes, he's better at his job maybe than they are but you know if you're trying to get some kind of moral equality that has to go both ways um and you know obviously of course the systematic racism is a much bigger deal but i don't think that that kind of erases and all other kinds of prejudice i mean that's true i i just so so yeah what i'm getting at is that on a character level Comparing their two character arcs, I think. Oh yeah, one is much steeper than the other. <laughs> I, I think. I think seeing eye to eye, I think their two characters work. Um, I think the character arcs work, and I think that's what kind of what carries this film moving forward. Um, I just think that nowadays, most people would. Mo- I feel like most people would not look at it as being snooty is, is an equivalent to being racist. Right. Do, do you get, right. do you get what I'm driving at? Like, I'm not saying, no, I'm not saying no, the I movie understand. doesn't work thematically anymore. I'm just saying the, the, the balance sheet is just the starkness. Isn't there? Yeah. 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 It's, it's just a little different. Um, and you know, maybe to that point, uh, also sending Partia takes talks in his book. And I've heard this before from multiple people. Um, and other sources, books, autobiographies, so on and so forth. It often takes uh, somebody who has to be, you know, two, three, four times better than every other uh, white person to crack through into an industry. And that's kind of like a story of Sidney Poitier's career, too. He was that person who was just phenomenal for whatever reason, natural talent, hard work, probably a combination of the two and a whole lot of luck luck sprinkled with, uh, throughout to crack through that ceiling and make it okay to have one of the biggest leading men in Hollywood be an African American. 
um, which is obviously really impressive and, you know, kind of like a microcosm of what happened in his career is what's happening in this movie. Um, and of course, you know, all of the, uh, all of the racial baggage that you could possibly imagine gets thrown into this film. Um, yeah, they, there's literally a plantation owner in this movie. I think another part of the whole racial tension is that to some extent on Virgil Tibbs's uh, side, a lot of his reaction is kind of anticipatory of the racism that obviously does come, but a lot of times he's very wary before it even does come. And that's probably just like a part of, you know, being there, but you could see him trying to just get out before anything even like starts. He's trying to just avoid it altogether. And obviously he can't. And then once he's in it, he's in it to win it again, trying to be better and prove that he's better than everyone else at the risk of, you know, his own life by the end. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, he, he, I mean, the smart move definitely would have been for him to get out, but he was not satisfied with that. I think that, and he tried at first before he was like into it. Yeah. And then once he was in, he was in, um, I think, yeah. And that's, that's kind of like his character flaw that he, I don't know. He's successful in the end. I don't know if he overcomes his character flaw, but he's still really fun and compelling to watch the entire time. Um, yeah. But it's interesting in in that respect as a neo-noir that it's not necessarily a tragedy as a lot of neo-noirs are, because in that sense, it could have been his pride that ultimately got him killed. Um, But to your point, he he is able to overcome even through his pride, maybe because of his pride. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, um, talking about the fact that this is neo-noir, I mean, it is a very dark story. It's a murder mystery story. Um, it happens to have color. It also happens to happen at night, um, which leads to a lot of incredible cinematography. Um, I'm oh, yeah. This so, is the only one that's in color, first of all. Yeah, I'm so excited to get to this section on the Instagram, Jonathan. You don't even know. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of incredible cinematography, both during the day and at night. And of course, at night, Everybody is literally sweating, like all the time. It's like they spritz everybody down with a water with a little water spritzer before every take, which is probably what they did. Um, yeah, they should have called the movie something about it being hot and the nighttime. I don't know. Yeah, they yeah, could yeah. they could work it because literally this is a pressure cooker film, right? Like you yeah. get the sense, and there's there's direct references to it by Rod Steiger's character that this town is ready to pop by the end of it, and it nearly does. Um, Actually, you know what? It kind of does. Somebody somebody gets killed or at least severely injured. Well, yeah, all the all the white people turn on each other, which is kind of how Fertile Tibbs gets out of his predicament. Um, so, yeah, it even taking him out of the equation, the town was ready to jump itself. It was ready to jump anybody. And Virgil Tibbs was just an easy kind of scapegoat. Yeah, yeah. No, um, of course, he was smart enough to get himself out of that Um I also love that there's a really strong color theme in this this movie, or at least strong for 1967. Um, really strong color themes as we modern day know them uh, kind of start to come about in the late 90s, early 2000s as color grading really becomes a viable thing. Um, and people yeah. start to think the entire color format, feel, and temperature of their movie 
all the way through. Roger all the Deakins time. is able to kind of monochromatize each scene. <laughs> yeah, every scene is like a single color or a single color palette, um, rather than like if you start to go backwards in times to like the. 90s especially the 80s a lot of 80s comedies fall into this trap where it just kind of shoots for a more naturalistic approach maybe because they didn't think of it maybe because they're just going with it maybe because they're just stuck in the same way that you set design and uh do production design overall from like the black and white era but you you end up with these sets that don't really have a very strong color theme to them it's just is uh, which leads to a lot of beige, which isn't great. But in this movie, we don't have that. We have a very strong color scheme, a lot of neon lights happening at night, which is great. A lot of cop colors, um, literally red and blue, are probably the two strongest colors throughout the course of this movie. Um, you see a lot, lot, lot of those, um, especially at night, casting people in these colored lights or at crime scenes or just the blue of the night in general. Um, yeah. It's really strong, and it's it's just one of the uh, other dichotomies that happen in the film. Uh, black and white, uh, educated, non-educated, um, cop, not a cop, um, guilty, not guilty, all sorts of stuff that happens in the film to draw these really stark lines between characters. Um, and if you're wondering whether or not some of the stuff in this film feels like it's reaching to create conflict, I'll give you a hint. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely right. this this movie set out to create as much conflict including as much racial conflict over the course of its story as it could because that's what makes for an entertaining um entertaining story um so sometimes that's something that i have to remind myself as i watch something as i start to get upset at movies themselves I'm like no wait, wait, wait they're actually trying to create conflict that's the point right because if it was just happy fun times for 90 minutes straight that wouldn't be very fun um, Jonathan, do you want to talk about the slap? Oh, the slap. Yes. You know, okay. that TV show that aired for one and a half seasons. <laughs> I do not know. Um, but yeah, you don't so remember that TV there show? is, no, I do not at all. Do you know, do you remember what it's about? Well, obviously you don't. No, I don't know anything uh, about it. <laughs> it was a TV show that, and, and they made like one and a half seasons about this. I don't know how they stretched it for that far, but it was about, um, an incident that happened at a party where a parent slapped a child who wasn't his child for misbehaving, like across the face. And they extracted like 16 something episodes of drama from that. And I don't know how. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 Now, this slap okay. in this movie, I could see that happening. So there's a point in the film where they're going to interrogate kind of the, uh, the rich mogul, the guy who literally has a plantation. Um, where all the black people are still picking cotton. And so they drive up and uh, they have this conversation. It's, again, one of those boiler scenes where uh, there is a very clear um, kind of uh, tension between this mogul and Sidney Poitier's character who is kind of very slyly interrogating him. Um, but uh, they're both being very kind of suave about it. Until the point where Sidney Poitier uh, explicitly says that he's investigating him for this murder. And then the plantation owner slaps him across the face. In the script of the film, Sidney Poitier's character was supposed to take it and kind of, uh, in a dignified way, kind of walk out and um, just ignore it. And Sidney Poitier, um, again, trying to hold two characters that 
align with his own moral framework was like, okay, that's not cool. How about if we shoot the scene where I slap him back immediately? And so they did that and they created this really, really great point where this, again, this boiler scene comes to a head. He gets slapped in the face and slaps him right back. And the, the, the plantation owner is so shocked that he stares back at him and just kind of slowly says, in another time, I could have shot you and or had you shot or something. And then later someone says virtually the same thing to Rod Steiger's character, where it's like, I don't know what's come over you because our last sheriff would have shot him like immediately after he slapped a white man. Um, and so it's showing all of this change and stuff. But the the best part about it is once um, Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger leave the scene, the plantation owner basically breaks down and starts crying afterwards and just showing like <laughs> how hard it is for these <laughs> for I, these people to kind moment. of come yeah. to grips with reality <laughs> it's pathetic it's it pathetic. really is it really is and it's great i love it <laughs> i i love that moment especially after you spent that entire scene being like all creepy with this like specifically groomed flowers and stuff. Yeah, and high and mighty. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like literally playing God with his flowers. Yeah, that was that was a satisfying slap. And you know what? Just on the surface of it, like it's just a really great moment dramatically. Um, but looking back on it, I could see how shocking that would have been in 1967. Oh yeah, I would be surprised if there weren't some some theaters where people got. <laughs> got up and walked out oh yeah no i mean this movie was definitely banned in a lot of theaters in the south a lot i mean and this was 1967 the civil rights bill had already passed but not everybody had like swallowed it yet i guess i guess a lot of people right. still haven't really swallowed it but um but yeah no i mean it was definitely definitely still um still still banned in parts and uh, Sidney Poitier talks in uh, another one of his books. I don't know if you've gotten to it, Jonathan. It's the one where he writes a bunch of letters to his great-granddaughter. And he mentions that in several of his movies, including in this one, uh, he received uh, death threats after the movie's release. Wow. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I know. But it's still, it's still like cleaned up at the Oscars. So... Oh, yeah. And I mean, you know, it's a fantastic movie. The tension is great. The characters are great and yeah i mean they're not necessarily all likable people but they're really entertaining to watch on screen and well balanced thematically um in terms of wants ambitions yada 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 um the and one thing i was thinking of is you have to imagine that you know all of the actors in the film like as despicable as their characters might be as these hicks must have been really cool people in order to play these scenes off with uh sydney portier like the guy that they pick up at first who's in the jail cell with him like that scene has a lot of chemistry in it um so i mean yeah, those guys as are like best tense as the, the themes are i know like as <laughs> tense as the themes are i also get the sense that it must have been a lot of fun to film yeah, yeah, it's, it's weird. Like, over the course of the movie, like, a lot of the people who just hate Tibbs at first just because he's black, like, thinks he think think he's, like, the best person ever by the end of it. Like, yeah. he's, like, slowly winning over all of these white racists one by one, which, again, is kind of like a weird, like, microcosm of Sidney Poitier's career. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, and I guess before we move on for this film, we should talk about Sidney Poitier's performance very specifically because um, the the three of these films together like are so different in the characters. We have um, the really overdramatic kind of screw-up character in Raisin in the Sun, the very sympathetic uh, everyman who is just trying to do what's best for this girl, and then in the heat of the night we have the stoic... Uh, you know, very prideful police detective. And so he's much more reserved. And of course, he's every in, in every scene, he's weighing his options because it's again, it's a, a tea kettle ready to explode, like in every interaction that he has with one of these uh, characters. And so, so much of his performance is coming through again, his face and his thoughts. And we're seeing him like, okay, how far can I push this? Like, how much do I want to reach my neck out? Like, especially at the beginning when he gets <laughs> friggin' arrested uh, just for being black and having a lot of money in his wallet. Um, and you can see him like, okay, this is so messed up, but, and then in a couple minutes, you realize that he actually has the upper hand as being a police officer and a top homicide detective, uh, but he takes it all up to that point because he knows that any wrong move could be very, very bad for him, but it all comes through his face because he, he can't, in that situation, he can't say anything or he's trying to decide what to say that will be the best. And that carries throughout this whole film. Like he doesn't say all that much. Like he's a very reserved character again, but he's so strong and his face is so, uh, emotive and transparent that he's just a joy to watch all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. And if you recall, recall Jonathan from his book, um, he, he experienced a, a similar situation in real life at least once that we know of from the book um, in which he had a very tense encounter with cops who, uh, yeah, you know, in Miami. Anyway, yeah, we won't, we won't, we won't go into detail here because <laughs> it would take too much time and we are starting to run a bit long anyway. But um, if I do highly recommend listening to it because I mean, if it could happen to Sydney Portier, um, anyway, Let's go to overall notes. Um, of course, we've already talked about this a little bit, but we do want to reemphasize that Sidney Poitier is nothing uh, if not dignit. He has dignified. Dignified. Okay, I was about to say, like, what is what, what do you call somebody who who has, possesses the attribute of dignity dignified that is the term thank you jonathan there you go <laughs> i mean he is he is he is dig he's dignified in all three of these roles just like you said and he's dignified in all of his other roles too even some of the weirder ones that you wouldn't think would have a lot of dignity to them he does have like um the defiant ones in which he plays like an escaped prisoner from a chain gang um who is handcuffed to another uh, escaped prisoner who happens to be white and happens to be extremely racist um which by the way is a really good movie too highly recommend um he plays a prisoner the entire time and yet somehow he has his dignity the entire time it's just like an attitude uh, that he's just assumed. Um, I think the specific words he used were he would never take a role that would disrespect or um, dishonor his father. 
Um, I don't yeah. remember the specific wording. I wish I did, but it, it's along those lines, like a certain amount of respect for who he is and where he's come from, um, his family, his, um, his people, his entire background, he wants to portray in the best light. And you can tell like that sense wasn't just like a once or two, one or two time occurrence. It was his entire career. Uh, in fact, there are multiple instances of him turning down roles in periods where he didn't really have a lot of work as an actor. A lot of his early films yeah. were spaced out by a few years and he had to make ends meet going back to being a dishwasher he like opened up a barbecue uh joint in new york <laughs> at one point with a friend to make ends meet um he was getting movie role offers but they were they were these offers that weren't weren't dignified, dignified. in a way yeah they were people who were afraid or scared and not in uh understandable human way but in like this kind of pathetic way like that plantation owner who just got slapped and is you know crying over the tears of his own failed power structure um he i i mean i can't give the guy enough props he took on such an epic task and i i think there's a lot of people out there who uh like to point towards moving forward all the time but give credit where credit is due portier cracked open a lot of doors by just being yeah. a, amazing. I mean, just maybe one of the best actors that we've covered on the show since Chaplin, just in terms of like sheer raw talent. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even his roles that, you know, don't on the face or all the way through have a lot of dignity, like in a raisin in the sun, that's kind of the whole character's journey is he starts off, um, willing to, sacrifice anything and everything for his own personal dreams. But by the end he has, and you know, through the film, he gets to a point where he's willing to sacrifice his dignity in order to, uh, meet his ends. But by the very end, he has finally regained his dignity. And I think that even those roles are kind of the ones that, uh, Sidney Poitier is very drawn to in that, that discovery, that discovery of dignity, either, um, you know, inherent within them all the way through or a process of reclaiming that and getting to that point by the end. Yeah. Um, and you know, the way that that is shown in all three of these movies is very different. Again, like the journey in a raisin in the sun, just kind of that, that inherent dignity and just love of humans in general in, uh, a patch of blue. And then the way that he has to kind of struggle and moderate and figure out how that should best express itself in his relationship with this stranger girl that, uh, he's trying to do the best for, um, in an appropriate way. And then also in the heat of the night where he is at the top, he has a lot of power and he has a lot of pride in that. And, uh, he's trying to keep his dignity and make his moves, uh, with dignity when everyone else around him is trying to strip that away from him. Uh, so there are three very different ways of coming at that dignity, but it is still ingrained in all of those characters. And, you know, it creates this canon of roles that Sidney Poitier portrayed that have this running theme and that are identified with him as a person. Uh, 
because, you know, that is what he chose at the beginning of his career to do. He didn't he didn't want to kind of muddy this history that he has. And so now he has this this single unified career that shows no compromise in the types of roles and the types of ways that he wanted to be portrayed as an actor and as an artist. Yeah, it's incredibly impressive. But with that, there comes even some some controversy in that as as kind of noble as it seems on its face because there was quite a bit of backlash during his career of this idea that um, Sidney Poitier was only portraying very uh, high-minded and moral characters and people were concerned, uh, specifically the African-American community, that if those are the only kind of roles that Sidney Poitier was taking on and trying to get the public to accept, then those are the only types of black people that that people would accept. And, um, you know, he kind of, in his autobiography, he doesn't delve into it too much, but I think the idea is that he wanted to portray characters that he thought just good humans should be like. You know, he wasn't necessarily trying to make us, you know, the biggest statement on, you know, accepting all black people in any stage of life, but he was just trying to portray what his idea of a good human of any race should be like and the qualities that they should have within themselves. True, true. And I feel like a lot of his characters have a lot of deeply human flaws to them. Um, You know, a lot of them aren't like completely self-destructive or harmful or disingenuous. And he definitely steered away from from those. Um, But also... Like he, he took on that burden, but he doesn't have to take on the, took on the burden of like cracking through the ceiling and, um, portraying so many people at once through, you know, just sheer numbers game of him being the only leading African-American, uh, man in Hollywood for so long. Um, he doesn't have to take on all of the burdens. That's asking too much of a person. Um, right. I mean, he played... Um, I mean, the, his, his character in A Raisin in the Sun is by no means on the surface, a perfect person. Um, his character in, in the heat of the night is a rageaholic, um, (laughs) with, with a heavy penchant for getting in deep, deep trouble. Um, oh yeah. So it's not like all of his characters are completely perfect. Now, if all of his characters were exactly like his character in A Patch of Blue or exactly like his character in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I, or Blackboard I could, Jungle. Or, or Blackboard. Well, no, Blackboard Jungle is very different. I think you mean To Sir With Love. Oh, okay. To Sir With Love is the one where he's a teacher. Blackboard Jungle, he plays a troubled kid. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Got but but he's, he's the troubled kid who ends up being on the side of the teacher rather than the, uh, troubled kid who ends up lashing out with a knife and like cutting another one of his class members. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's definitely played a lot of troubled roles, maybe not as troubled as he'd like, but he was also, I mean, by, by doing what he did, he made, uh, he, he opened the path for, uh, Denzel Washington to win the second ever um, Oscar for 
best actor for an African-American um, for training day in which Denzel Washington plays like a straight up murderer. Um, so he doesn't have to do all of the work at once. It's a lot of work to be done to blaze that trail. And he's blazed a very long part of it. And I feel like he's definitely earned his retirement at this point. And he's been retired since like 2001, <laughs> yeah. 2002, something like that. So, I mean, at this point, screw the haters. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, he doesn't he doesn't give a lot of time to that in his autobiography. He's basically like, you know, this was a little controversy that happened, uh, you know, from from the other side, uh, from the African-American community. But he's like. At some point, people kind of got over it and they realized that these are just good roles and good characters um, in in kind of the scope of storytelling. And, you know, he took those good roles, those top roles, and he he's shown in those. And uh, I think people have recognized that. And, uh, you know, they're, they're just really good films that have so much packed into them. Uh, that again, we could go on forever about each one of them and, you know, all of the things within them. Uh, but taken as a whole, Sidney Poitier is, you know, he's a he's a shining light as far as uh, acting and craftsmanship. And um, it's really special that that is a part of film history and especially in the era that he was working in uh, in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, as the nation was trying to come to terms with all of these things, he was kind of showing, you know, the the top of the top of like what we should all be like and how we should all be interacting. Exactly. Ah, oh, man. If only we could cover actors who make such good career choices every week. But <laughs> right. alas, there's just not that many of them. So uh, I think that's about it for Sidney Poitier. But what are we talking about next week on the podcast, Jonathan? Or what are we talking about next time on the podcast, Jonathan? Yeah, so next time we're going to uh, have our first guest of the season. Uh, we're inviting back Benjamin Angrozano to talk about some of his favorite films of all times, ones that I have been much derided for never having seen yet. Um, so I'm excited to watch them and talk about them on the air. And that is the entire Godfather trilogy um, the Godfather from 1972, The Godfather Part 2 from 1974, and The Godfather Part 3 from 1990. Um, I know people are gasping and fainting that I have never seen them uh, in all my two-plus decades of life. Um, but, yeah, I'm excited to finally experience them and, uh, and break them down with you, Alex, and Ben next time. Yeah, you should you should brew a pot of coffee before you watch them. They're they're long. They're very very long. All right. I think I I've think, done long movies before. <laughs> I think the entire trilogy is like it's like an hour and a half shy of the Lord of the Rings extended edition trilogy or something like that. Like it's long. It's hmm. it's 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 quite it's quite a lot of movies. So just be 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 prepared. Well, I am no stranger to the Lord of the Rings marathon, yeah. so I think I'll be okay. All right. And that are you signing up to watch them all in one day? That's what I think I'm hearing. Uh, I haven't decided yet. It depends on what my schedule looks like the next couple of weeks. Oh, man. Okay. Um, well, but we have another movie that we're talking about um, 
on our Patreon podcast for the $5 tier. So once again, our little donation plugs, we have a coffee and a Patreon account. If you would like to send us a couple bucks to keep this show going and keep the information flowing. Uh, so on our bonus podcast, if you would like to get a little bit deeper, you can sign up for the $5 tier. And uh, next week, that episode will be coming out. And what are we talking about, Alex? We will be talking about Broken Blossoms. Uh, surprisingly enough, more race topics have made their way <laughs> into the Patreon podcast. I think that was unintentional. It is a DW. It's actually incredibly relevant to A Patch of Blue, which we'll be talking Weirdly about. <laughs> so. It is from like 1919. Um, it is by D.W. Griffith. Um, who obviously, in addition to all of his wonderful, wonderful technical advancements and skill uh, that he brought to the the film industry, also brought a lot of uh, weird moralizing and also the incredibly controversial, uh, but unfortunately has a very linchpin point of our uh, film history attached to it, Birth of a Nation. Um, So... We're not going to be talking about Birth of a Nation, but we will be talking about Broken Blossoms, another D.W. Griffith film, weirdly dealing with race. Um, so if you would like to hear about that and much, much more on our several bonus podcasts that have come out by now, go ahead and sign up for the $5 tier. That's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at J.S. Satchel. And I'm at Alex Garinger. And I am at the Blue Jay, 1994. And find links to things that we talked about today. You can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. In the heat of the night. <laughs> Or was it in the heat of the night? Or I don't even know. I'm not even going to attempt. Do it, Jonathan. Do it at least once. In the heat of the night. I'm too white. I don't know. It was was a great song, though. It was a great intro. It It was great. It was great. It was great.